Hey everyone, my name is Devin Watley and welcome to another episode of the On The Record Podcast. This one's a special one, episode 10. Finally glad to be back at it. I'll be talking today with NBC7 sports anchor Darn Trip about what it was like to do sports journalism amid a pandemic, his journey from his hometown of Philadelphia to finally settling in here in San Diego, California. We're also going to talk a little bit about what it was like for him to cover the 2018 Gonzaga men's basketball national title runner runner up team and we're also going to talk about san diego sports so i i would hope you all enjoy this episode and of course thanks for listening welcome to another episode of the on the record podcast I'm here with NBC7 sports anchor Darnay Tripp. Darnay, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Devin. Yeah, of course. Um, for those who don't know, Darnay and I work together at NBC7. I recently just got a um, story producer position at NBC, and so I've, I've been seeing Darnay a lot more often recently. For those who don't know, Darnay, you cover the sports at NBC7, so I kind of wanted to touch a little bit of a little bit upon a lot of different things. You and I, we we both been at the station, you know, doing our reporting, doing stuff during COVID. And I know things have been kind of challenging in the sports world. I mean, obviously we had the NBA and all these other sports canceled like months ago at that early phase of the pandemic, but now things are starting to kind of come back. As you look back on like that early phase when all these sports were canceled, like, was there a moment where you kind of were like worried, like that you weren't going to be finding any stories or like that you weren't going to be you know getting any content for shows yeah definitely I think initially there was a lot of uncertainty just in terms of just how long it was going to go I think there were a lot of people you you saw it a lot with the NCAA tournament and heard coaches and and people saying well why don't they just wait a month or two you know let this thing kind of go by and then maybe we can still play the tournament before you know say the summer rolls around things obviously went much longer than that and it's a little bit funny just kind of thinking back just on my mindset during that time and just the conversation around it because we really didn't know. And I think I thought, you know, June, July, you know, hopefully we'll be in a good place and, you know, we'll get baseball season in and all that and, and it will more or less be behind us. And, and here we are just past 11 months into this thing and, Things are better. The sports world is, you know, the wheels are turning, so to speak. And the, the this few leagues that are more so on kind of like a local regional level that we haven't seen are, are coming back. And then the major sports have, have returned and baseball is getting ready to launch into its second season since this all began. And so it's been it's been good to see it from that standpoint. But early on, yeah, there was definitely a fear of, okay, what do we do now? You know, what do we do as somebody whose livelihood is covering sports and doing so here in San Diego? And I think initially there were so many stories of people that were impacted by the shutdown that those were kind of easy to pull from those first couple of few weeks. I mean, I did one with Yanni Wetzel, you know, a former Aztec who came to SDSU to play in the NCAA tournament, did everything he could to put his team in a position to get you know, potentially a one seed. And then in the blink of an eye, his career is over. 
And there are other stories like that around town. And then when those slowed down, then that's when, you know, it took a little bit more digging to, to find different angles and different stories. And then it gradually turned into, and, and, and some of those are just the way people were adjusting, you know, a fitness instructor leading Zoom classes, uh, mm-hmm. uh, a former USD softball player who was training for the Boston Marathon. And the, around the time the marathon was supposed to be run, she just ran a marathon around her neighborhood and people got excited about it and, and cheered her on. And so there are little instances like that. And, and then as we got a month or two into it, then stories about how leagues were trying to adjust and figure out ways to, to play during those circumstances and baseball, obviously a big one here in San Diego. And so I, I'm, I'm proud of just how collectively myself, Derek Togerson, Todd Strain, just figured out ways to find stories, identified those and, and kind of changed our routine and, um, and just uh, told stories about people and, and, and leagues and teams just adjusting to the circumstances and try and find ways to, uh, to do what they do. Mm-hmm. And you know, what's funny is like one of the things that I kind of remember was like, I was in Las Vegas for the Mountain West tournament and San Diego State, I think they they were they just lost to Utah State, and I was back on campus, and I was remembering like, wow, you know, the, the couple more weeks until the NCAA tournament, and like everything's gonna be all fine, and then all of a sudden, you know, everything kind of just comes crashing down. And it's it's almost like a worst case scenario for for you and all the other sports journalists out there. I mean, because you're not covering anything, but um, you know, I was I was talking with a friend the other day about like how um, a lot of things that have become common in the pandemic might become mainstays after it's over. And uh, one of the things I talked about was like Zoom press conferences because um, I was telling my friend like, you know, these Zoom press conferences are a lot easier to conduct than in person, or at least in my opinion, because you have like the raise hand option and all the formats are pretty easy. <laughs> like what's one thing that you think won't be the same for sports journalists post pandemic? I think I do genuinely wonder about the level of media access because for instance, with baseball, you know, we have access to say the Padres clubhouse before games, after games, and it's just kind of a free for all. And, and you try and find times where it looks like the guys are ready and comfortable to talk. And usually there's a big scrum around them. And, um, you know, it's, it's different in, in different leagues, but, you know, for the most part, there's some sort of locker room time available to media and to reporters. And I think it can be really valuable. I think, you know, you have the chance for everybody to, to talk to the big stars and whoever factored into that game or what have you. But you also have opportunities for kind of those side conversations and, and even just passing comments to a player here or there that gives you an opportunity to kind of get to know them and to build a relationship and maybe it's just you and them talking for a little bit. And I really, I've always really valued those types of interactions and, you know, the big scrums are fun. Um, They can be unpredictable and, um, you know, obviously having more people around asking questions, it it lends itself to a broader discussion and different things might come up and maybe somebody asks a question one way, doesn't get much of an answer. Somebody asks another way and you get a better. And so it can just kind of take different shape. And, and, but I just, I, I think there's a lot of value. And I think anybody that, that covers teams would agree. There's just a lot of value to that in-person access and the ability to have those conversations, even if it's just, 
not recorded off the record, what have you, just to kind of develop that bond and get to know them and, and in turn the team a little bit more. And so that's one thing I'm, I'm a little bit worried about and curious about is just how that look. I mean, I think things will eventually get back to being in person, but maybe not the same level of access that we've gotten accustomed to. And I, there, the, the Zoom aspect, I think, is great, especially for this sort of thing. It's great for interviews. Um, it's great for podcasts. It's great for, you know, you can have a few people on at a time and, and kind of lead a conversation. And you don't have to figure out a time to get everybody in a room together with just travel and different arrangements. You pop on your laptop or phone and, and you can make it happen. So I think I think that'll stick around. Uh, and it's something that I enjoy. I do, I do miss press conferences though, because, and, and more so the, the scrums than, you know, you have the big press conferences, say when you introduce a player and, mm-hmm. or, or even the ones that happen, you know, at the NCAA tournament or at playoff games mm-hmm. where, you know, they got to hand somebody a microphone and ask a question. Those, those are a bit more regimented because you got to raise your hand, you get the mic, blah, blah, blah. The ones I really enjoy are just the scrums, like the in a hallway outside of a game or in a locker room or a clubhouse, because you have a group of people and somebody asks a question that just, just gets you going down a, a different road. And then you're able to just kind of chime in and follow that question up. And it, and it just kind of turns into a fun, maybe unexpected conversation. You don't really have that opportunity necessarily on a Zoom because you've got a list of people in line to ask questions mm-hmm. and maybe somebody says something interesting and then that sparks something. And then you, you raise your hand virtually and then they yeah. get back to you and you say, you said something a little bit earlier that I thought was interesting. And, and then you get back to it. It's, but there's something about the spontaneity of it that makes it more fun and makes it more loose, especially when you're in person. And so I miss that aspect of it a lot. Um, you know, just being able to kind of chime in and, and, um, when, when a topic or a question sparks a conversation that you didn't necessarily see coming. I, I miss that a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think what's one thing I kind of do miss with in-person stuff, um, in regards to like interviews is you could get, read a lot more nonverbal cues from a lot of these players that I think you don't really get in zoom interviews because it's like, you only see like their face or, you know, parts of their body, but you can, you can kind of read a lot more and kind of gauge how they respond and stuff like that based off of their question. And so that's kind of one thing I hope comes back. I mean, who knows really, it really kind of is a toss up. I think with, with media access, like you mentioned before, but um, a lot of sports journalists now have been attending events and covering stuff during COVID. I mean, I got to cover the SDSU men's basketball game versus St. Catherine um, earlier this season. Um, Have you gotten the chance to attend any events since the pandemic started and like, if you have, like, how would you describe your experience? Yeah, I covered a few Padres games, um, especially during the playoffs, and have gone to a couple STSU and USD basketball games. It's definitely different, I mean, for a lot of reasons. I mean, and just the Farmers Insurance Open this past, you know, few weeks. The, the most obvious thing is not having fans in attendance and just the environment. I mean, there's something about the buzz, right? When you walk into a stadium or an arena or on the grounds of a golf course and you're hearing applause here and there, and there's just so much energy. And obviously with the show at VA Haas Arena, what they, what they bring to that environment and 
last year was just a, such a great example is that building was on fire and that team was on fire and it became one of the great stories of the, the college basketball season. Padres fans missed out on one of the best, most exciting seasons in, in team history. And they got to enjoy it outside the gates, outside the players a lot, you know, after those games, which made for some really memorable scenes. And it's like the type of stuff that I'm sure we'll, we'll see celebrations like that again, but it's, it becomes so memorable because of the circumstances, because of mm-hmm. how strange it is. And like, this was their only opportunity to get an in-person glimpse of the team. And these diehards went down there because they wanted to see these guys and celebrate them and let them know how much they appreciate what they're doing and having tailgates, you know, with people watching from their cars, you know, on a big screen, because that was the only way you could congregate and watch, watch a game. And so I think, you know, those will be really, really memorable for people in their own kind of strange way, but there's nothing like being in the seats, you know, for those events. And so that was sorely missed. And, you know, it is a little bit weird. I, I've, I'm a bit of a wanderer. I kind of like just walking around and seeing Mm -hmm. different things and, you know, different vantage points and this and that. And, you know, you can't do that at every sporting event, but certainly, when you're kind of more restricted to being in certain places, certain areas, certain seats, you have to walk certain ways through stadiums or certain parts of kind of the venue. You're only allowed to enter here and exit there. You know, it takes away from the opportunity to just kind of get different glimpses from different angles of of places and kind of take it in. And in that sense, on the flip side, you know, there it's, it's weird shooting, you know, SDSU basketball games, like 10 or 11 rows up in an empty Mm -hmm. stadium (laughs) There are certain aspects of it that, you know, it can be, it can be stressful fighting crowds, you know, and, mm, yeah. and don't get, don't get me wrong. If, if I had my choice, there would always be a packed house and there's, there's just nothing like that, but there is an ease that kind of comes with it. You know, cover, covering the farmers. We're so privileged to be some of the few people that get a chance to take that tournament in, in person. I was only there for some of the practice rounds but just to be able to wander around and, and just capture which, whatever you want to capture and see what you want to see, you know, you, you certainly realize how fortunate you are just for our own convenience, which certainly isn't the most important part of the equation, mm-hmm. but um, just makes it easy to get around and, and do our yeah. job. But again, there's just, there's nothing like a packed house, a packed scene, the, the roar of fans and, and just the excitement that they get out of it. And so that's, I'm, I'm hoping that that's kind of gradually coming back. We've seen it in, in bits and pieces with different leagues and sports and, and hopefully 2021 is the year that we get back to that full time, at least, you know, over the next nine or 12 months. Yeah, I'm hoping so. I mean, when, when I got to cover that SDSU game against St. Catharines, I remember I was sitting in the, in the seats and I was just like, this does not feel right at all. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, you, you see all the cutouts and the banners and, and, um, one, one thing that I, that kind of bothers me, I don't know if it bothers you too, but the piped in crowd noise, um, <laughs> is just not, it's not something that I'm, I'm just not a fan of because it just feels kind of artificial. Like if there's no fans, I'm, I'm kind of a purist in the sense and in, in, in the sense that I'm like, if there's no fans, I don't want any, you yeah. know, piped in noise. Cause it just sounds like it's kind of a, a, not like, not like, not necessarily that a team's cheating, but like, it just kind of takes away from the, the purity of the game. I mean, especially when you don't have fans there, but um, yeah, it was just kind of a strange experience because you, you would think that like, I'm, I'm, I've just been used to SDSU games and seeing all the fans and every, you know, all the characters, all the different mm-hmm. kind of 
you know, atmosphere and just the loudness and, and kind of watching it when there's no one there. It's kind of, um, it's kind of, it's kind of special in a sense. Cause you're like, wow, I get to watch this and I get to cover this, but it's kind of strange at the same time too. I don't know if you get that same feeling when you're, when you're watching these games now, but. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I don't know, maybe it's because I sleep with one of those white noise machines. I, I found that I, end up kind of tuning it out. I almost forget that it's there. And I know it bugs a lot of people and I, I understand why and certain places do it better than others. And I think when you leave those settings and get to silence sometimes, especially when you're indoors inside an arena, you're like, okay, this is nice. I'm not hearing just kind of that constant hum behind me, whether you really notice it in the moment or not. So I don't know, it hasn't bothered me too much. They got to do what they got to do, right? And so you can't have the players on each team here and everything that the other side is saying, you know, it's probably best if the refs can't hear everything, even though they're hearing a lot more Mm -hmm. and, and, and for the broadcast, you know, it's best if the cameras and the mics don't pick up everything that's being said. Cause we know, Mm. know, especially in an NBA game, you know, there's a, there's a lot that's being said. And it was kind of funny last week at the San Jose state game when Brian Detcher got the technical foul I was shooting that and I was about 11 or 12 rows up and I, I wasn't paying attention to Brian Dutcher in the moment, but I heard him and I heard him yelling and, and, and clearly frustrated with the ref. And it caught me a little bit off guard because I don't know if I'd necessarily, you kind of hear it during games. You can kind of hear it when you're inside the arena, but not as clear as I heard it. And just kind of the inflection of his voice, it caught mm-hmm. me off guard just because I, I hadn't necessarily heard. I've only been covering the team for a couple of years, but I hadn't heard Brian Dutcher, you know, raising his voice in that manner. Yeah. As clearly as I did in a basically empty arena with just some hum of crowd noise. And he was, you know, he wasn't like yelling, berating a ref. He was just trying to get them to hear him from across the floor. And so I kind of turned my camera and, and was paying attention to what he said. And it was funny being able to basically pick out word for word what he was saying. And he said, that's an awful call. That's not a foul. You know, I just want it called the same on that end. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's not a, he doesn't use profanity. You know, he's a very, you know, for the most part, mild mannered guy. Mm -hmm. And they ended up hitting him with a technical foul. And if I couldn't hear what was being said, I would have probably thought, well, I'm sure he said something to earn it. But in the moment, you know, he was he was harping on it. He didn't let it go, but he didn't say anything harsh. Mm-hmm. You know, the worst thing he said was that was an awful call. And I don't think that's enough for a technical foul. And it, that wasn't even what led to the whistle. And so it, that was a really funny experience to actually be able to notice, oh, hey, this is going on, be able to pick out what he said, hear the whistle and the technical foul and kind of be able to judge it in the moment as a spectator in person. Whereas even if in, you're in the, the, the fifth row or maybe even courtside, when it's a packed arena, you might not be able to hear the, that exchange. And I was able to, and I went back and, and watched again on, you know, the, the shot that I'd gotten. Um, and yeah, it, it, uh, I was trending, trending on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it got picked up a little bit, but, you know, I, I processed it pretty much the same way. You know, there weren't any really any surprises. Um, so that was just kind of a funny experience, you know, fairly specific to this year and this setting, at least as far as San Diego State goes. You know, some some programs, you know, there isn't a ton of life in the arena. And so maybe you can pick up on that. But for San Diego State's purposes, 
if it's packed building, there's no way that I, 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 I take that in the way I did. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about your journey about where you've been to where you are now. You're a Philadelphia native, or at least I read on the Mm -hmm. NBC website, and then you graduated from Towson. And I believe if I remember the last time we talked, you told me about how you had stops in like Montana and Spokane. And, you know, a lot of people in the journalism business talk about getting that first job or getting a job where you have to kind of make that leap to travel to a place that you've never been to before. I mean, obviously you're from Philadelphia. So working in these other places like Washington and Montana, I mean, it must be a completely different experience. Like what was, what was that experience like for you when you were first starting out and you had to like move to these different jobs? It was really cool. And I'm fortunate to have had those experiences. I kind of knew, you know, as somebody in your position or somebody, the position you were just in, you know, in, in school, trying to kind of figure out what the next step looks like and what it entails, you know, I knew that was going to be a very good possibility. And I, I was, I think I was up for it. You know, I, grew up in Philly, went to school in Baltimore. And so that's within two hours of one another. You know, I've I've pretty much been in the Northeast my entire life or that corridor my entire life and hadn't done really much of any traveling other than kind of family vacations here or there up and down the East Coast. So I was due for kind of an adventure. I was due for a trip and, and new surroundings. And, you know, I got it with Kalispell. I mean, that's about as different as you can get you know, from Philly and Baltimore, um, for a variety of reasons. And my dad had actually been there and knew of some people there that were able to kind of take me in and help me get settled. And, you know, then you, you tell people about it and, and you find out that they did a trip there to go skiing or go to Glacier National Park or hang out in the lake during the summer and, and how much they liked it and how cool it is. And, you know, I don't, I'd never heard of the town before I'd applied to the job and didn't know much about Montana. And so, I, it was exciting once I got there. And I think, you know, I had a lot to learn just professionally. I think it was good to start really small for me and just learn everything and, and, and really just kind of from the basics, like how to do the job. I, I, I didn't go into it with, you know, the, the core knowledge that people get with internships, like they typically offer at our station and, um, you know, I think about the interns that we have, like they know so much more than I did when I graduated. And so that was a perfect place for me just to kind of learn on the job, make mistakes and kind of figure out who I am from that standpoint. And I think when I got there, it's like, you always have goals and stuff that you want to like aspire to and what you want to reach and all that in mind. But I think what I realized when I was there was like, I'll never get this, this experience back. I'm going to be here for two years and I'll never live in Kalispell, Montana again, in all likelihood, unless I just decide I love it here. And I, you know, which the summers, you know, could be enough to convince me, but the winters, you know, there, there's too much to handle, handle. Um, and so I just, I tried to really be in the moment and enjoy those experiences and learn and soak it up. And, you know, I have a lot of nostalgia for that time and for that job and that opportunity and just kind of the beautiful surroundings there. And it's a place I've visited a bunch since then, and I will continue to visit. And so I think it's just important. I think you do your best work also when you're engaged, when you're in the moment, when you're not thinking about what's ahead, you know, Mm -hmm. 
what you want coming next. Like there will be time to kind of think about that and assess that. But, you know, when you get a job, I think it's really important just to pour yourself into it, you know, to a healthy degree and then, um, you know, learn, learn as much as you can really focus, lock into what you're doing, because that ultimately will position you for that next opportunity. You know, if you're kind of one foot in it, one foot out thinking about what's next, you're, you're, I think that'll probably show in your work and in the quality of your work. And it'll also, I think, show in terms of what type of, what the people that are around you and that work with you say about you, you know, Mm -hmm. they're going to notice that. And even if the quality of your work is still good, you know, they might be less inclined to give you a good recommendation or to really go to bat for you because maybe they feel like you weren't really invested Mm -hmm. in them and and, in that place in that community. And I think the community aspect of it is huge. It's like, you know, we are serving our communities and, you know, I think being genuine and, and you don't, I mean, I got, I got called a Yankee when I was in Georgia, you know, and like, it was all in good fun, but people knew I was from the North, you know? Mm -hmm. And so they gave it to me, but I think they also realized that like, I was really into what I was covering. I worked hard. I wanted to get to know them. I covered weird, quirky outdoor sporting events in Montana. (laughs) Just ask questions. You know, how, Mm -hmm. how would I know what this is or what this is all about? Like, I don't have the background. So it's like, don't fake it. Don't act like you're an expert. Ask questions, show interest. You know, people want to share their knowledge and insight with you. And so that, that, that's been a cool part of the experiences is just kind of getting to know different areas and covering different things and, um, you know, doing some traveling, all the experiences that, that have come with it professionally and cool things I've gotten to cover and, and witness people I've gotten a chance to get to know. And so I mean, that journey has been really, really fun. I think each step was really good for me just in terms of like what I was ready for and areas I needed to grow. And um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Like, is there any advice that you would have given yourself like back when you were first starting out and about to head out in all these different places? I think, I, I think part of it is just like, like really be in the moment, really be invested in what you're doing. Um, I think, you know, you know, work hard, try to grow, but don't be too hard on yourself. You're going to make mistakes. It's not going to be perfect. There is, uh, Paul Johnson, he used to coach Georgia tech, their football program. And he used to say, um, I remember when I was covering them, he'd say after a game, especially after a win, it's never as good as, or as bad as it seems, you know, the wins feel great in the moment, but then you go back and watch them and you realize there's, all right, it's maybe there's a lot of room for improvement. And then the losses, when you struggle, when you, when you mess up, like it feels so big and horrible in the moment and you go back Mm -hmm. and watch, it's like, all right, it's really not that big of a deal. And so I think that's important to learn. Um, And yeah, just, and I think just to not be afraid to kind of push yourself, um, to get uncomfortable. I think that's ultimately how you grow. And I think that was, you know, my last few years and my last stop in Spokane was a few years of a lot of growth and experimenting, getting creative, trying new things. And, um, I think, you know, don't be afraid of that, lean into that, you know, get a little uncomfortable, see how it goes and just be willing to kind of learn and grow in that way. And, 
you know, it's, it's a, it's a crowded industry. There's only so many opportunities. And so you really have to figure out how to stand out. And, you know, I, I watched somebody, somebody reached out to me and showed me their reel and recently in the last few months. And, you know, this person was, was good, had a comfort, clearly a comfort level being on camera and, and some confidence, but I also saw them doing a lot of the same stuff that I've seen on resume tapes and the same kind of jokes and gimmicks Mm -hmm. for as long as I've been in the business, you know? And so how do you harness that creativity and that energy into something new that not everybody's doing? And how do you make yourself stand out in that sense? And it's not always easy to figure out, but I think as you go, as a story opportunity arises or an event, like something, you know, triggers in your mind, like, okay, this is, this is different. This is new. This is something we could explore. And I think the Mm -hmm. more you do that, the more you kind of train your brain to think in that way. Mm -hmm. And again, the opportunities, the, the ideas don't come up all the time, but then like, you'll have kind of that light bulb moment where you're like, okay, this is cool. Um, And maybe it's something that you've seen somebody else do before um, that triggers a different idea or you think, okay, we could replicate something like that. Not everybody's doing it, but, you know, I think taking ideas from bigger markets, bigger networks, using them in your own. Um, So it's kind of like paying attention to others, getting a sense of what other people are doing. But, you know, we've all seen kind of the the jokes and the gimmicks and the things that like everybody Mm kind of does, like maybe steer away from those, Mm -hmm. but keep your eyes and ears open for just kind of newer, newer ways of covering teams, athletes and events and, and trying to incorporate that in your game to, mm-hmm. to separate yourself a little bit. Mm. You know, you look, looking back at your career, like, do you ever have one story that like you remember and you're just like, wow, like that was such a good story that I did. Like one of your favorites, like if you can remember, like, do you have any favorite yeah, stories? It's, yeah, it's for me, it's pretty easy. It was when I was in Spokane and there was a video that kind of went viral. It was the 5th of July. I I remember everything about this. I was at a friend's family's lake house and it was the day after the 4th of July and I was getting ready to like get myself together and and leave and then go into work. And I was scrolling through Twitter and I saw a video pop up on Deadspin about this guy playing basketball in a full Michael Michael Jordan uniform. He had Jordans on full shorts, matching Jersey, had the wristband in the right spot, like down to a T. He had the calf, the sleeve on his, the black kind of rubber sleeve on his calf. He had everything. And so I was like, that's kind of interesting, but whatever. And I was like, for some reason I thought, well, maybe I should check it just in the outside chance that it's somewhere around here. And it ended up being in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, which is at the time it was like 15 minutes from where I was, but near Spokane. And so I DM some people and eventually found out that it was a 33 year old at the time guy named Jeffrey Harrison, who had at the time we thought in conversations with people that it was autism turns out. And I've gotten to know his mother and, and um, she and I even still text message, you know, every few months or so he had a seizure disorder that caused a form of developmental disability. And so I was able to get in touch with his friend. I was able to get in touch with his, his mother. And about a couple of weeks later, I met Jeffrey and did a story about him. And, you know, the, here's this guy that everybody saw on the internet. People were kind of poking fun at him. 
some people thought it was kind of, you know, cool. Like, Hey, you, you're showing respect for your favorite athlete and got to know, you know, why he's so passionate about basketball. Some of the difficulties that he has in his life, he can't work, but he is obsessed with basketball. He's obsessed with Michael Jordan. He's obsessed with those bulls teams. He's got trading cards. He just watches games on YouTube and he goes around plays basketball. He loves playing basketball. And that's kind of how he harnesses his, his energy and spends his time. And so I did that story and, you know, people were like, you know, Michael Jordan should see this. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that'd be cool. But like, you know, how is Michael Jordan going to see this? Yeah. <laughs> so I reached out, I sent an email to the media people with the Hornets where he's obviously the owner. And I was like, Hey, this is a long shot. I did this story. I thought he might want to see it. And they put me in touch with SD Portnoy, who is his longtime manager. So I sent SD an email and, you know, I think it was like a week or two later, it was like in the middle of the, like between shows, I had just finished the six o'clock show and just kind of hanging out and an email from SD pops up. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And wow. I think I saved the email. I hope I have it somewhere. I think I forwarded it to my personal email because I wanted to keep it. But somewhere in the email, she said, I think she called, referred to him as MJ. MJ saw the story and loved it. And they, wow. wanted, to, they wanted to do something for Jeffrey. So I, had, I was going back and forth with SD and with somebody that works for the Jordan brand. And they wanted to send some gear to Jeffrey. And so it was kind of like a, a few weeks of going back and forth with them. And they finally figured out a date. Like we've got some gear arriving and it's going to show up on this day. Jeffrey has no idea. His mother had actually gotten a voicemail from Michael Jordan. She Wow, she, that's incredible. She got this, she, this call and I don't know if she ignored it or missed the call. And she played it back for me. It was a voicemail. I probably have it on my phone or something from Michael Jordan saying, hey, saw the video. Um, thinking about you guys, we're going to do something special. You know, we'll be in touch. If you need anything, let me know. And so like hearing that was like, this is insane. And so we, we were there in place that day and these boxes arrived for Jeffrey and he typed out a letter to Jeffrey, just talking about your passion, how, how cool he thought it was his passion, how cool MJ thought it was, and it was signed your friend, Michael Jordan. And that was like, even now, like I get like, wow, I get chills um, just because I know what that meant to, to Jeffrey and, and to, um, to address it that way, I thought was really special. And so he opened up these boxes and there were like, I can't remember, but like something like 10 pairs of Jordans, all this gear, like great wow. two enormous boxes worth. And then kind of the, the culmination of the day was they wanted to set up time for Jordan to be on the phone with Jeffrey. Wow. And so they call him, they kind of put it on speakerphone and Jeffrey is talking to Michael Jordan, like his idol. And, um, you know, they, they talk for a few minutes and Jeffrey says when their conversations wind down, he's like, I love you, Michael. Like, I love you too, bro. Or I love you too, man. And uh, that was that. And so that was like an incredibly moving, touching, just uh, a story to, to just kind of observe and, and watch play out. And then I posted pictures and video of it and those blew up and got picked up by 
pretty much all the major networks. It was on sports center. It was all over the place. And wow. that was far and away, just kind of the biggest story from that standpoint that I've done. Um, and it was, you know, it was neat to see it blow up in that way. And for people to get to know Jeffrey and for people to see that side of MJ. Um, but just to see, you know, Jeffrey have that opportunity and be surrounded by family and, and to have him have a chance to connect with his idol. And I know how much it meant to his mother. Like that was, that was really neat. And so that one is going to be hard to top and one that I, I think back very fondly on. Yeah. Does it kind of make you feel special? Like, because knowing that you've made such an impact on this person's life that you were able to tell that story. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I try not to think about it too much that way. You know, I, um, I think to me, it's like, once you find out, like those are the stories that people love and connect so much with. And so I was a little bit surprised and maybe people just hadn't noticed that um, this video that blew up took place in Coeur d'Alene. But for me, it was kind of like a no brainer that you would try and track this individual down and get to know them and their story. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, you see those stories pop up every day on Twitter that are trending or that, that go viral, just little touching, interesting, quirky bits of humanity. And so for me, it just made sense right away. Like I want to figure out who this person is and, you know, whatever happened from there, like that was a plus and ended up being a really cool experience. But um, I don't know. I don't, I try not to think about it necessarily from the standpoint of like, you know, the, the various steps that were taken to, to get to that point. I'm just really happy that it happened. Mm-hmm. You know, if for whoever, you know, made those connections, like, I'm just really happy that Jeffrey had that experience, you know, surrounded by family members. And, um, and I, I hope it's something that he still cherishes and treasures and, and can think back fondly of and, wears all the gear and, <laughs> and all that. Um, cause that was, that was just really neat. And, um, you know, to me, that's, that's the most important thing is, you know, he, um, he got to have this experience that, that nobody else gets to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one of my favorite stories that I got to do was about, um, Malachi Flynn. I wrote this column about him, um, because a lot, I was like, a lot of people know who he is on the court, but like, what is he like off the court? And, and I was able to talk to like, I had a connection with um, one of his best friends, David Jenkins Jr., who actually plays for UNLV um, because they both went to Tacoma. They actually grew up with each other and they were playing in grade school. And like, I got to talk with his high school coach. I tried to get in touch with uh, Malachi, but obviously, you know, he's, he's super <laughs> hard to get in touch of. I mean, that guy, that guy's in his own, in his own area, but um, I was able to get like Dave Velasquez and they talked about this moment where, um, Malachi was in his red shirt season and um, they had, I believe SDSU was playing BYU at home and Malachi went for like 40 points or 30 points in practice and like um, took like the red shirt, you know, this, this, the um, scout team and almost beat the starters. I think, I think that was one of the stories, but like just, just hearing those gems and, and those stuff and like being able to put that in your story. Those are, those are kind of the moments that like, I look back and I'm like, wow, you know, people told me that and, I got to tell that story, but that was, that was one of my favorites. His, his family actually ended up reaching out to me afterwards and they told me that they loved it. So yeah. Um, yeah. Those are one of my favorites, but I wanted to, I wanted to segue into 
your job in Spokane, you were a sports director there. And like you, you, in, in your NBC profile, it talked about how you saw so many amazing moments from like NCAA tournaments to NFL playoffs, Super Bowls. Is there one event that just strikes out to you the most out of all of them that you've seen? Yeah. I mean, I got to cover two Super Bowls, a few Seahawks playoff games, uh, I think it was six NCAA tournaments, which included one Final Four. I mean, it's hard, you know, they're like get seeing Gonzaga finally get to the Final Four was really cool because it was it was a fifth year that I'd covered them and they had never been to a Final Four. And until two years prior, they had kind of struggled just to get back to the Sweet 16. And so it meant so much to the program and meant so much to the fan base. And it was cool because, you know, you develop a relationship with the people within the program and then you get to see them do something really special and, and you get to know the fan base and all that. And so that part of it makes it, makes it really, really cool. Um, and being in a final four and, you know, all that was, it's just such a massive event and um, cool to just kind of be a part of that. Um, I think in terms of like, there's two moments like in games that stick out. And one was they beat West Virginia in the sweet 16 in, they had a lot of close games in that run, but maybe probably the, the, the most demanding just cause that game was a grind. That's how West Virginia played. They totally got Gonzaga out of their kind of MO and style, but still mm-hmm. managed to beat them. But there was, they Gonzaga was down. I want to say one, one or two. And they had a sequence that they turned it over, then blocked a shot to get the ball back. There's an outlet pass down the floor and uh, their, their best shooter on the team kind of catches it at his ankles, pulls up, hits a three pointer and place goes nuts. And Gonzaga has a lead with, um, I forget how much time was left. It was definitely in the last minute or two. And then West Virginia got the ball. I can't remember if they were, I think they were going for the win. Maybe they were down three. And I just remember thinking like, I'm sitting here on press row, like watching this all unfold. Like this is nuts. (laughs) And I felt so anxious and so tense. And, you know, you, you, you get some investment in the teams just by covering them and being around them, but it's certainly Mm -hmm. not the experience of a fan. But like in that moment, I felt like a fan, you know, a little bit because you're on the edge of your seat and you're like, you've got butterflies and your palms are uh, palms are sweating and all that. And I just felt like West Virginia got like a dozen three pointers up, you know, and they didn't hit one and Gonzaga survives. And um, they ended up uh, winning really comfortably over Xavier to get to the final four. And that was really neat, but that West Virginia game was just a back alley brawl and had an incredible finish and, having watched so many of those types of games just growing up and loving the NCAA tournament, that's what struck me is like, I've watched countless amounts of these games play out in this same fashion, but on TV. And, you know, it wasn't the first close game that I'd seen in covering them, but for some reason that one just felt different, maybe because it was in the sweet 16 and it was truly going down to the wire. And the other one was the, second Super Bowl that the Seahawks went to when they lost to the Patriots. The, the, the weird aspect about covering the Super Bowl is for that game, we were up in the corner of the, one of the end zones mm-hmm. and there's kind of a big media section, but they try and get you in position 
to do the media stuff, the interview, the post-game interviews, you know, have you in position by the time the players are ready. And you can't wait to do that until the game's over because you're going to get stuck, you know, with everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. making their way through the stadium. And so they kind of usher you out, you know, in the back, you know, five or six minutes of the, of the game. And so you actually don't get a chance to sit in your seats and watch that because you're on your way down to the media room. Mm-hmm. And so we're walking through and we get to one of the end zones. You can kind of see through a tunnel and a bunch of us just stop because it's a back and forth game. Brady hit, I believe Danny Amendola to give the Patriots a late lead with, you know, a minute and change left or whatever it was. And that was in the end zone right in front of us. And, you know, we can see where we need to go, you know, from there, we're kind of in the lower level. We know we can yeah. rush down there whenever. And so a bunch of us just kind of like, kind of went off to the side of the tunnel just to kind of get whatever glimpse we could get. So Patriots score, take a late lead. Seahawks get the ball back. A play that will now be one of the great kind of, forgotten plays is Russell Wilson throws a deep ball to Jermaine curse who bobbles it and, oh, and then lays it. on his back when he catches it. Mm-hmm. It's like the most, one of the most unlikely, I mean, similar to the play that Julian, uh, Julian Edelman had against the Falcons where it's this incredible catch, you know, David Tyree, those are now remembered as these unbelievable Super Bowl moments. And the Jermaine curse play would be remembered amongst those because it got them in position to score and they give the ball to Marshawn. He runs for about four or five yards, gets them down to the one. And so everybody has an idea of what's going to happen in that moment. And so I'm thinking like, wow, I'm, you know, you're kind of keeping tabs on what's going on and thinking about how you're going to cover it. And, and all this, this incredible super bowl, these amazing moments back mm-hmm. and forth finish. And I see them line up in the shotgun. And in my mind, I'm like, all right, they're running a uh, zone read. Russ is either going to hand it off to Marshawn or peel off around his tackle and score. I the, the thought of passing the football didn't even cross my mind. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a little bit strange that they were lined up in the shotgun, but I just thought they got two options. You give it to beast mode, you know, or Russ runs it in. They still had a timeout left. So they have... They got opportunities. You know, you run, call a timeout, you pass on third down. Either way, the clock is stopping. If you don't score, mm-hmm. then you have fourth down. So they had they had time to get three plays off. Um, and then we all know what happened. I I because I'm I'm looking at the opposite end zone kind of through a tunnel, you don't have the clearest view of what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's it's 150 yards away or whatever Mm -hmm. you see him pass. I didn't know what happened until I saw all the Patriots fans in the section nearest me get up and go nuts. And that's when I was like, Oh my gosh, he just threw an interception. The game's over. And that's kind of the funny part about being a spectator in some of these events is, you know, it's not like we were watching on TV where we have a clear picture of what's going on. I couldn't really tell what was going on until I saw the reaction of others. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the all-time Super Bowl moments and one of the all-time Super Bowl mistakes, most questionable calls yeah. that we've seen. And uh, again, just kind of uh, that's one of the fun aspects of, of covering those events. It's not just being in the atmosphere, but 
you just process it and see it you know, from such a different perspective. And, um, you know, to have the fans, the fans were kind of my eyes and ears in that moment, mm. have them tell me what went on. Cause you know, it's just a mess of bodies. And then you eventually see Malcolm Butler come out with the ball. Um, that's when I'll, I'll always remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned, you mentioned to me about how you covered Gonzaga. And I mean, that, that national, the team that made the national championship game. I mean, to me, that was one of the, the, the signature Mark few Gonzaga teams. And I just remember how, I just remember how talented they were. I mean, I think they only lost one game, right. To BYU at, at home that year. I'm not sure if they may, they maybe lost either one or two games, but I remember um, like Nigel Williams, gosh, like uh, Karnowski, I think mm-hmm. it was Jordan Matthews. I mean, they had such, such, such talented players. And I remember they beat San Diego state pretty badly that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, cause I think SDSU played them They're uh, in at home. Yeah. In Spokane that year. You like, guys got them a year later, though, at Viejas. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they did. Um, but, I mean, for you, like, when – do you kind of see parallels between that Gonzaga team and the SDSU team from last year? Because they're, they're, there's almost, like, kind of a, a similar thing. Like, you have Nigel Williams-Goss kind of being this, like, leader, this presence guy, Malachi Flynn, similar thing. Like, do you kind of see a little bit of parallels between them? Yeah, definitely. Um, I thought about that a lot last year, and – Aside from Malachi, Malachi kind of took on the Nigel role, but that team also had uh, Jordan Matthews and Jonathan Williams. So they had three big name transfers that immediately became starters and key contributors. Same as San Diego State with Malachi, Yanni Wetzel, and KJ Fagan. And you knew there was potential there. You just didn't know necessarily how the pieces were going to fit. And with just kind of egos and personalities, how things are going to go from that standpoint. Both those teams just meshed right away and were really, really tight right away and won a bunch of games, Um, you know, 26 straight for SDSU and then 29 for Gonzaga. They lost in their regular season finale to BYU would have gone 30 and 0. And, you know, a couple guys in that team told me since like, that was good for us. It was good to kind of get shaken up to have a bit of a wake up call to get hand to the loss and see, okay, this isn't the end of the world, you know, because I think you start to play that plays into your mind, whether you want yeah. to think about it or not. And to learn from that moment to kind of shed that fear of what's going to happen if we lose, well, you're still a one seed, you're still in the NCAA tournament. You still have a chance to win a national championship. Mm-hmm. So just go out and play ball. And you know, I think for SDSU, you know, there's talk about what could happen and potentially going in, you know, finishing a, an undefeated regular season. Um, but, you know, it, it's I don't, a wake up call like that can't necessarily hurt you. It's fun for the fans. It's mm-hmm. it would be amazing for the program. But there are certain things you can't. You can learn a lot in winning, but there's certain things you can only learn in the loss. And so yeah. I think, you know, there is some value to that. And so. But seeing the way that those those teams just fit together so perfectly and everybody just kind of seamlessly went into their role. I mean, and Yanni Wetzel being, you know, such a pleasant surprise, the guy that people didn't know. He was the unheralded of the three transfers, didn't really mm-hmm. necessarily know what to expect from him. And just such a good player on both ends and a guy that is super low maintenance, low ego, but can contribute in a lot of ways. And then KJ Fagan, you know, what's the dynamic between Fagan and Malachi Flynn. I got to cover and and watch Malachi Flynn when he was at WSU 
you know, then you don't necessarily know the way he grew his game and the way physically, I mean, he looked different that season than he did his freshman, sophomore year at WSU. Mm. KJ Fagan, you know, he was the man at Santa Clara, averaged 17 points per game. You know, he is happy to take on a, a just kind of that floor general role, get his offense when it comes, lock down on defense. And so that was that was a really cool thing to see. And it was it didn't take and a part of me, you know, being around the programs. It, it, it was easy for me, but it didn't take much to kind of notice the parallels. Then obviously with the success that they had and the potential that they had. And um, so, yeah, that was cool. And, and to be in position for a one seed, if not, you know, probably would have been a two because of the loss to Utah state, but to still have that opportunity um, and just to, to hopefully stay close throughout the NCAA tournament, um, you know, at least to Southern California or to the West coast uh, was, was really cool. It's just, it's a shame. We didn't get a chance to see the final yeah. chapter play out. But, um, you know, clearly Gonzaga started really bringing in transfers in 2015 and they have just, it's like year after year, they've got impact players that played, started their careers at other programs and thought, you know what, I just want to win. I want to experience the NCAA tournament. Gonzaga's been there every year for two decades. That's the place for me. And, And on top of that, now they're making the Sweet 16 or Elite Eight every year players now look at STSU that same way, even though they had missed the tournament three out of four years leading into last season. Yeah. They view it as a winning program, a program with a culture in place, a coaching staff that can help maximize the talent of its players and, and put them in position to succeed. And, um, you know, it's not a free for all when you bring those players together, like they have a vision for how they're going to use these guys. They get the buy-in, mm-hmm. you've got the veterans on the team to kind of help facilitate that and, and, and keep players in check. And so it was kind of cool for me to see as the relative newcomer, like, you know, it's the same thing, you know, now Terrell Gomez, he saw yeah. what SDSU did. He wanted to be a part of that. You know, he, he got his, you know, at Northridge, he could have stayed there and, set a new career scoring record, but he wanted to be a part of a winner. And mm-hmm. that's a really good sign when um, you add kind of that pipeline in terms of recruiting. It's not just top high school talent. It's not just players in Southern California or throughout the state. It's guys that know, okay, if I go to San Diego state, I'm going to have a good chance to win a conference championship, good chance to make the NCAA tournament, hopefully win a couple games and do something that, you know, I, I haven't, that hasn't been a shoe in at my most recent stop. Yeah, I mean, you kind of hit it all on the head there. I mean, one one thing to me that always strikes out is like a lot of people are talking about how when Malachi Flynn transferred, nobody kind of knew what to expect. But for me, I mean, I remember watching Malachi Flynn like put up 30 against San Diego State in the Wooden Legacy tournament mm-hmm. and, and he beat them there. And I was like, you know, this guy is like really good. And then I got to um like, I mean, I got to, I got to see him on campus and stuff like that. And I was, and, and just the, just the personalities behind the players, I think is what made them such a good team because they got along so well with each other. I mean, you could say what you want to say about the statistics, about the numbers, but I think chemistry can take a basketball team so far. And especially in college too, when you have so many, when it's when really in college, it's not like the NBA where it's like a one person game, you know, one talent elevates you to a victory. It's more so a team thing, but to me, that's kind of what I, I'd see is the parallels between both teams is like, 
they they just had really good chemistry alongside with their talent, but they had really good chemistry and great coaching to kind of take them far. But um, yeah. you know, for you, you've interviewed so many players and coaches from Mark Few to Brian Dutcher to Brady Hoke, Rocky Long. You know, is there any is there any coach that you just enjoy interviewing? Yeah, yeah. I, I there's I mean, there's been a lot, you know, you know, going back just through the different stops, especially when you're you know, when you develop relationships at the high school level, you know, you get, it's kind of more dedicated, kind of intimate, close time, getting to know some of those coaches, those, those interactions can be really special and meaningful. And then you get, you get personalities. Um, I mean, Mike Leach is a great one. You know, he was, you never really knew what was going to come out of a Mike Leach press conference and what he was going to say and had a lot of, a lot of rants go viral when I was there. And, you, you know, you kind of have to learn how to talk to them and how, like what questions they will answer, what questions they're not going to answer, how to phrase them or word them. And he was just, he could be hard. He could be hard on reporters. Um, he could be hard on players, uh, but he was always unpredictable, which, which made it fun going into those press conferences, just because, especially after games, he's going to give you a raw assessment of his team. And that's what you always want. You know, he wasn't always super candid, but he, he could be brutally honest, if that makes sense. And so that made for some uncomfortable moments, but it also makes it interesting when you do your job, when, you know, the coach is telling you exactly what's on his mind. So he was always a good one. He had some players, a player that he had, Gabe Marks was kind of the same way. He was just like, he would just let you have it and you give it to you straight. And, and, we got to know him a good bit and, and is probably one of my, if not my favorite athlete that I've covered or interviewed from that standpoint, just because um, he was a straight shooter and he had a lot of confidence, a lot of self-belief and just spoke from the heart. And, you know, that's, that's always what you want to hear. So, I mean, there's, there's been, there's been a lot of them. I know I'm, I'm forgetting a bunch, you know, when I was in Macon, I got to cover, uh, Bob Hoffman was the head coach of the basketball team at Mercer that beat Duke. And they, that happened a couple of years after I left. Actually, that happened when I was covering a Gonzaga NCAA tournament game at VA House Arena in 2014. It's kind of like a weird, like I was in San Diego, my future home, covering the team that I was currently covering. My first ever visit to San Diego, watching and listening to the team I used to cover beat Duke in the NCAA tournament. So that's kind of the fun aspect of, of doing the job. But I had a really close relationship with him and I don't, you know, I've, I, from the standpoint of like, I could just call him or text him and say, Hey, I want to come to practice. I want to talk is now a good day. And I remember one day he couldn't make it and he got, he got players, you know, to meet me. And so we, we love and value the work of sports information directors and all they do to facilitate us in those interviews and they're, they're hard workers and all that. But that's one of the fun parts of, you know, working in a small market, small program, you know, you just get to, you get a get more opportunities to really get to know these guys and develop mm. relationships and earn their trust. And, you know, the guys that worked in the program, they never seemed to mind, you know, I was buddies with them as well. And so they didn't seem to care that I would reach out directly to the coach from time to time and, mm-hmm. and get stuff done that way. And, um, you know, he was really good to me and, you know, the coaches here, Sam Scholl has been really good to me. And, you know, Brian Dutcher, I've gotten a chance to be around him and his teams. Uh, Matt Logie at Point Loma, I know from, he was the head coach of Whitworth in, in Spokane. So I know him and 
but it's all a process, you know, and it takes time to develop those relationships. And I think that's going back to what we were talking about before. That's why yeah. it's nice to not do it all over Zoom. If you can get a one-on-one like this over Zoom, that's great. You can really connect with somebody. But in terms of those scrums and press conference settings, like you just don't get the opportunity to do that. And so um, it's, I've, I've, I think as, as I've gone on, I, I learned more and more just how much I value those relationships and connections. And um, I'm hoping we'll be able to get a chance to get back to that in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can imagine you must have had a field day doing like getting sound bites from Mike Leach's interviews. Sometimes it was incredibly boring and nothing would come of it. But then some days he would just be on it and would just go and <laughs> like, okay, this is going to be, I've, he's given me all the content I need. So yeah, he was, he was a memorable one for sure. And, um, you know, I, I always had good interactions with him. And I remember one time I, uh, you know, cause I didn't have too many opportunities to just kind of one-on-one have a conversation. And my mom uh, was born in Cuba. Her parents were missionaries and she spent like the first 11, 12 years of her life there. And one off season, he visited Cuba. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll ask Mike Leach about Cuba after the scrum and get a chance to kind of connect with him. And uh, it was after a practice and I had like a half hour show before I needed to do anything or a half hour or so before I needed to do anything for our show. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, cool, I got plenty of time and thing died down and people kind of went their separate ways. And so I asked him, I was like, you know, I told him about my mom and, and he just went on and on and on. <laughs> and when you get him talking about a topic like that, like he doesn't stop. And it was like 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And I'm looking at my clock, like I need to get myself together <laughs> so I can do my thing. And I, I yeah. hated it because I would have loved to have just sat there for 45 minutes and talked to Mike Leach about his experience in Cuba. Yeah. But then I was the one that was like, no, I got to go, <laughs> you yeah. know? And so, um, it was funny. He was, uh, I kind of figured out how to, you know, approach him, ask him questions, get how to give myself the best shot at getting a good answer out of him, even though it didn't necessarily always work. And then there were certainly some fun moments along the way as well. Mm-hmm. Actually there was the, the, he had a, a clip go viral from a guy that worked at the NBC station Spokane of, of, you know, I covered two holiday bowls that WSU played in, in San Diego. First trip, I met my wife on that trip. So that's why, <laughs> that's ultimately why I'm here in San Diego. And so the second year, there was a clip of him just kind of blowing on like a hot cup of tea for like a minute. And <laughs> the guy I worked with or worked alongside posted it and that went viral. And so there were a lot of Mike Leach moments and I'm appreciative, uh, appreciative of the opportunity to cover him for a number of reasons, but mostly it, it ultimately led to me meeting my wife and moving to San Diego. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it's all a meant to be thing, kind of a, a parallel. It all yeah. meets, all meets all all roads lead to this. All roads lead to San Diego. I guess is how it, it goes. Kind of, it kind of felt like it. Like when I came here in 2014 to cover Gonzaga, we stayed at the Hilton. I want to say in Mission Valley, we went to the In and Out in Mission Valley, like three times like every night and that's like that's now the closest one to where I live now we went to a uh, El Zarape in Normal Heights that was like the taco place that we found that was closest that was supposed to be good and that's now in my mother-in-law close to my mother-in-law's house so it's like it's weird having these experiences where you look back and 
you know, it was amazing being in San Diego. I'd never been in San Diego before, even just driving through Mission Valley and seeing the palm trees. I'm like, this place is incredible. <laughs> and then we went to Pacific Beach and kind of walked around and it's just like paradise. And now living here, um, it's really neat that like, these things are part of like my daily or weekly commute. And I like, I see them all the time and I go to that yeah. in and out. Oh, that's like, that's my neighborhood in and out, so to speak. Um, so it's, uh, it's been a pretty fun journey. Yeah. I mean, for, for a local like me, seven, 70 degree weather, uh, it's like a daily thing here. I, I, I always brag to my friends who live out in the East coast about like how nice it is here. And I, cause I, I, that's one thing I never take for granted is always how nice the weather is. But before we go, I wanted to do a little sports roundup with you. I mean, obviously we have quite a few things going on. Padres are starting their season up very soon. Aztecs are head, about to head to the, the Mountain West Tournament in about a few weeks from now. Now for SDSU, I mean, what do you think is like the biggest key for them to continue their success right now? Because they play Fresno State this upcoming, at the end of this week, and then they play a really good series against the top seed Boise State, which I think a lot of people are looking forward to. And then they also might have that rescheduled UNLV game possibly, but what do you think is the biggest key for them heading into Las Vegas in that Mountain West tournament? Yeah. I mean, I think just keeping the foot on the gas, I mean, hearing what the guys have said just about their turnaround, just like playing with confidence, being aggressive, you know, they were tentative, you know, especially in those losses to Utah state. And I think, whereas last season, the, the fit was so seamless. They hit the ground running. That wasn't the case with this year's team. You know, Matt Mitchell is, you know, figuring out being the guy and like a team with Matt Mitchell as the best player can be a good team. As we're seeing a team with Matt Mitchell as the, you know, maybe second best player, you know, give or take, like we saw last year where Malachi Flint, and that's a really, really good team. And so Matt was kind of figuring out that role and Terrell Gomez, you know, an alpha at his last stop was having to kind of figure out his place. And I think probably deferred a little too much. And so I think it just took some time. I think the emergence of a guy like Lamont Butler has been really big. And those guys maybe worrying less about being good teammates and sharing the load as much as just like, you got to look, take it, play fearless, play aggressive, go at teams. And the game will tell you whose night it is. You know, you don't necessarily have to worry about that. Recently, it's been Jordan Shackles night a lot. And Matt Mitchell had a, a big game a week, about a week or so ago, um, coming off that, that knee injury. You know, Terrell Gomez, you know, he had 10 points in the first half of the San Jose State game on, on uh, Wednesday. You know, it's going to come in spurts for these different guys, for Nathan Mensah, for Lamont Butler, and just Kashad Johnson had a big game, you know, just kind of out of nowhere. So just take it as it comes and worrying less about that, worrying less about kind of spreading, spreading the love, so to speak. And just when you get your opportunity, just take it, you know, go at these teams, have that aggressive mindset, play with confidence and self-belief. And that seems to have really kind of sparked this team a bit and kind of shed some of the apprehension and the uneasiness that they seem to be playing with at portions. You know, it's funny, like they, they have the Arizona state game where they're just like on fire, look really good against a good team, but then they'd have stretches kind of following that where they just kind of looked a little lost. And then you didn't really get a sense that they knew what their offensive identity is. And, and it seems like they've kind of gotten a better handle on that. And 
you know, as we know with them, so much starts with their defense, which can lead to easy buckets. And obviously when you're playing good defense, um, you're making life harder on, on the other team. I do, I, part of me is a little bit worried because like, how much do we really know from the last six games Mm -hmm. against three of the worst four teams in the conference? Now it is hard, you know, they've had to go on the road and, and, you know, with same with Gonzaga, with SDSU, like these games aren't necessarily shoe-ins. I mean, they, they took the Malachi Flynn buzzer beater to beat San Jose state at VA house last mm-hmm. year. Yeah. So I, there is part of me that is a little bit worried that maybe they, they see Boise state the last, you know, week of February or excuse me, they get into these mountain West tournament games and you see Utah state, you see Colorado state again, team like Nevada that really pushed them and, maybe there is a little bit of fool's gold with this run, but I, I think what is, what is undeniable is I think they figured out a, a true identity and just how they function on the offensive end of the floor, which to me was like, when, when, when they're humming, like that's a really good, clearly a top 25 team, but when they lose that rhythm, when they're playing tentative, when, everybody's kind of waiting for somebody else to step up at the end of the half or at the end of the shot clock or at the end of the game. There's that un- uncertainty. Uh, that's that the team just isn't very good. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a bubble team, but the team that we've seen, I think that if they can continue with that offensive identity, it's going to put them in better position to, to win games like the ones they'll see in February and March. But then the dominant aspect of winning six straight games by 22 points. Like yeah. you can't necessarily count on that, but I think what is sustainable is, okay, we've learned something. We've tapped into something. He's since the Utah state game in terms of how we need to play and shots aren't always going to fall the way they have, but at least you have a better kind of flow and a better, better rhythm to the offense, which, you know, kind of came and went a little bit the first couple months of the season. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think like the 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 fact that you're playing the opponents twice in the same arena, I think definitely kind of adds to that too, in a sense, because it's like if you're playing, you know, they played Colorado State twice, that first game where they blew a 25 point lead. I mean, I think they just that that one they kind of just didn't see coming. But, you know, when you look at the Utah State game, I mean, if you if you think about that, they play at, at Logan twice. If they would have had one of those at Viejas Arena, that probably would have been a win. I mean, who we don't really know that, but. I think the factor of like the fact that you're playing the same team twice in the same place, I think it's kind of made a difference in why San Diego state has kind of been, you know, they kind of struggled at first with that, with the top half teams in the conference. And now they're kind of hitting their stride with a lot of the bottom half teams. But I think what's going to be interesting is Boise state's a very good team. I mean, they, they're a very talented team. Derek Alston, I think is like the mountain West uh, preseason player of the year. What's going to be interesting is, is to see how, they respond to playing higher level competition because it's clear that, you know, Boise state's like the, the best team in the league. And it's probably going to happen in the mountain West tournament where you're playing a Utah state or a Colorado state in order to get to that championship game. So it's going to be interesting to see what the coaches do and how they kind of game plan for that. I'm really looking forward to those games, but um, I wanted to talk to you now about the Padres. I mean, they just signed Mark Melanson. Um, you know, everybody's loving AJ Preller. I guess the guy, the guy, I call him the matchmaker, you know, cause he's, he's always <laughs> the, he's the guy that just, you, you don't think he, he makes deals, but he just continues to keep doing them. I mean, he's kind of like that guy that presses the force trades option in the show. I mean, he just <laughs> seems to find guys and, and keeps bringing them there. Like, you know, with, with all the deals that they made, you know, getting Darvish, getting Snell, um, getting all these players, like how far do you kind of see them going this year? I mean, just, it just seems destined that like, 
a Padres Dodgers NLCS or something like that might, you know, or Padres Dodgers meeting in the playoffs might become another reality. Yeah, hopefully. I mean, I think that's what everybody's kind of um, banking on. I mean, you just never know, you know, with injuries and all that, what will happen. And, and we've seen it, you know, even just two seasons ago with the Nationals starting as poorly as they did, then they just catch fire. And, and we've seen it a number of times. Like it doesn't all, often all that matters is where you're at in September. Can you get in the dance? And once you get there, if you're that team that kind of catches lightning in a bottle, you know, it doesn't matter if, if you had to get into the wild card, you know, um, at the end of the day, all that matters is, is how you're playing. And, and then the schedule compresses and your, your rotation compresses. And if you have a few studs that are just on fire, I mean, that can be enough to carry or somebody that kind of comes out of nowhere and, and swings a hot bat, then you just never know. But what they've done is they've at least put themselves in the conversation. They've added to their depth which is something that obviously was an issue last year when they lose Lamette and Clevenger, all of a sudden you're, you're thrown out uh, bullpen games in playoff series, which is not what you want to do. And they address that depth in the pitching staff. Now, I mean, they, they can go seven or so deep without blinking. They've added some depth to the bullpen in the last few days. And they added, you know, they brought back a jerks and Profar. They bring in Brian O'Grady, a depth piece that can play all over the outfield. And then Ha Sung Kim, like a really highly thought of Korean prospect, 25 years old, who can add some versatility and, and who is expected to be a guy that can contribute in the major league level. And so it's like their bench has gotten better. The bullpen's gotten a bit deeper. Even if you lose, you know, Trevor Rosenthal, Kirby Yates, guys that, you know, were lights out closers, you know, maybe that that's kind of done by committee, but you have bodies that you can throw out there and you certainly have lots of them, you know, in terms of your starting rotation. And some of the young guys that might have factored into the rotation you know, now if there's not room for them, they can bolster your bullpen. And, you know, the projections have them right up there with the Dodgers, you know, at least before the Bauer trade, I haven't, you know, seen them since, but as having, you know, the, the best record in baseball, the most talented team in baseball. And so that's all you can do at this time of year, right? Like there doesn't guarantee anything, mm-hmm. but I think we saw enough from them last year to be able to say with a good amount of assurance, like what they did in the 60 game season wasn't a fluke. Like this team mm-hmm. was real especially before the injuries to Lamette and Clevenger, you know, offensively, the strides that, that Manny Machado made, what Tatis provides, what Will Myers did, what Jerks and Profar stepped up and did, the arrival of Jake Cronenworth, like all these things. Again, in a relatively small sample size, there is reason to believe that even if, you know, Cronenworth struggled the back half of the season, Tatis was the front runner for MVP, you know, finished, was it fourth in voting? I can't remember off the top of my head. But wasn't, you know, wasn't the shoe and we thought he was. He was mm-hmm. still in the conversation, but he took a step back. But even despite all of that, there was enough to say, okay, this team is real. And so then to make the improvements that they did, to bring in a Cy Young winner like Blake Snell, a guy that just finished second in voting in U Darvish, there it's it's really impressive what AJ Preller was able to pull off. And and in a sense, he kind of took advantage of, you know, other teams playing it safer given some of the financial instability because of the pandemic because mm-hmm. you know not knowing how many fans you're going to be able to have in attendance well while other gms played it a bit safe aj probably just went for it and you know got you darvish because they could they were ready to take on salary and the cubs clearly wanted to shed some on their end and they had the prospects to make the blake snell trade and so they put themselves in this position to kind of be opportunistic and they were and 
they're loaded right now. And there's every reason to believe that they could win a world. Nobody would be surprised if the Padres won the World Series in 2021, mm-hmm. which is all you can hope for when you start a season, right? Doesn't guarantee anything. Yeah. But especially for this franchise that hasn't been in this position for such a long time and, and very rarely in their history, um, we're in that conversation to be in the spot right now. It's great for the fan base. It's great for the people that have been around the organization. And it's exciting to to see it play out and just to see the personality of this team and the way they've just kind of been embraced by the baseball world. I mean, so many people are excited about Padres baseball. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, like, has that ever really been the case before with rare exception and so it's cool to see but now you play 162 games and then october is going to come and if they don't win the division and right now it's they they haven't you know they had the expanded playoffs it doesn't look like as of now um, if i'm not mistaken they're going to be back to the the regular format and so mm-hmm. instead of two teams locked in from every division if they don't beat the Dodgers, they're in the wild card game. Yeah. And that's a one game playoff. And anything can happen in a one game playoff. And so it puts that much more emphasis on winning the division. And it's going to make that mo- that race against the Dodgers that much more exciting and important because um, I'd much rather step into a five game series than have to deal with a one game playing playoff where. Uh, literally anything can happen. So I would love to see, you know, it, it seems like the expanded playoffs will return in 2022. It's baseball. So weird, you know, why there's so much, especially coming up, they're going to, they're going to have to strike a new CBA. And so there's all these different factors just in terms of bargaining and, and just that whole process that play into these decisions, which is unfortunate because I think everybody loved the expanded playoffs and mm-hmm. more baseball, more teams, that will be invested in September rather than just, you know, we're, we have no chance, you know, maybe it's, you know, it's interesting. It, it works both ways because uh, on one hand, the, the downside is teams, there's a perception that teams won't be as aggressive in spending because they feel like more opportunities to make the playoffs. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we don't have to be quite as good mm-hmm. to get to that level, but on the flip side, how many teams and how many fan bases have phoned it in by late August because they know their team doesn't have a chance. Yeah. So when you expand from from five into eight, obviously that you cast a wider net, and so more teams feel like they've got a chance and and more excitement for for more fan bases. So it goes both ways a little bit, but just from the perspective of a sports fan, I thought the three game wild card series was a lot of fun. And but if that's not the case this year, it really is. You could have two teams that you know win you know ninety five plus games one of them will have to survive a one game playoff to get to the NLDS. And that's mm-hmm. a scary proposition, especially if you run into say there's a team that just catches fire and they've got to grind to get into the playoffs and they do that. And they've been in survival mode for weeks. And then you got to play them, you know, facing all their guns for one game. Um, it's a scary thought. Yeah, it, it certainly is. And, and, you know, one thing that it, this, this Padres hype kind of reminds me of is like in 2014, they got, I believe AJ Preller was able to get Matt Kemp, Craig Kimbrell, and a few other players, Justin Upton. Um, and I remember Tim Kirch and I was watching on SportsCenter that year and he was like, the Padres are going to win the World Series. And then I think they ended up winning only like 79 games or something like that. But yeah, they sold, sold everybody. And that's when this, this, rebuild started and they got young, they got young talent, they got prospects. And that's, that was the first step in kind of putting themselves in the position they're in now. 
yeah, it's 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 just gonna be interesting to see what the how that hype is kind of manifested this year. Like, are they are they gonna be as good as we all think, or will they just you know will they will they kind of tank? But who knows? I mean, that's the that's kind of the beauty in, in baseball, in my opinion. But they they have they have the culture in place now, and and Preller kind of joked about that. Like, they, what they didn't realize is just the personalities didn't fit, and that just wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't the the right collection of guys in the clubhouse to lend itself to success. They have yeah. that now. They have the culture. They have a manager that knows what buttons to push. They have a, a supersonic star in Fernando Tatis Jr. that sets the tone. Guys feed off the energy. And so they have the right personality, the the love of one another, the desire to win, and just kind of a good energy about them where, you know, I don't. I, it won't be kind of personality clashes or those types of issues that cause problems. It'll be, you know, Jake Cronenworth maybe isn't as good as we thought he was or guys get injured or, mm-hmm. you know, Tatis and Eric Hosmer slump or Will Myers reverts to where he was in 2018, 2019. Um, that'll be their downfall now rather than um, just kind of a bad collection of personalities. Yeah, exactly. I think you hit it right on the head there. Darnay, that's all I got. Thanks for coming to the show. I had a blast. I hope you did too. Any final words that you'd like to say to the listeners? I appreciate you having me on. Um, always a blast getting a chance to to chat with you and and to now see you at work. I mean, <laughs> hanging out with you, uh, talking to the Aztec uh, Daily Aztec group, and now seeing you in the building is very very cool. And um, happy for you, and um, just cool to see how you know your your collection. You know, that's one of the neat things when you go to college is you have this collection of people that have this kind of same same passion and same aspirations. And mm-hmm. I have a few now myself that I've seen gone on and do really, really cool stuff. And so it's been neat seeing that for some of you and your crew and, and excited for all you guys and just keep at it, keep working hard, be creative, have a good attitude, have fun and just in, enjoy the journey that's ahead of you. Yeah, of course. Thanks for talking to me today. Talking with me today, Darnay. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You just finished listening to my episode with NBC7 sports anchor Darnay Tripp. If you want to follow Darnay on Instagram, you can check it out at Darnay Tripp NBC7. That's D-A-R-N-A-Y-T-R-I-P-P-N-B-C-7. And if you want to follow Darnay on Twitter, you can check it out at Darnay Tripp. So that's at D-A-R-N-A-Y-T-R-I-P-P. And of course, don't forget to follow on the record podcast at instagram at on the record pod for more bonus content and information about the podcast and when the latest episodes are going to be coming out um hopefully we will have a new episode coming out soon in the meantime i hope you all enjoy and have a great day thanks for listening